Well, welcome for those who are visiting, for those in the internet audience, welcome. Uh, let us pray. We always want to do that first. We want the Holy Spirit to be with us, to enlighten us, to, to help us understand the passage. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to worship you, to adore you, for you are our utmost love. Lord, we are about to hear your passage in Psalms 15. Lord, I pray that the preacher decreases and you are increased higher and higher. May you be glorified in what I say. Lord, take away all distractions from our hearts. Lord, open up our eyes what the passage has to say. Convict of sin. Lord, sanctify us through your word. Your word is true. May we have a high view of God's word today. May our hearts be ready, ever ready, to listen to God's word. In your name, Jesus, we pray and we say, Amen. Amen. Well, today's passage is Psalms 15. And you might be saying, well, Darren, you were preaching a lot on Psalms. I love preaching on Psalms. Psalms gives you so much wisdom, so much love, so much biblical knowledge on who God is, His attributes, His character, and, and, and that's why I love preaching on Psalms. Well, today we are on Psalms 15, open up your Bibles, uh, let me do that myself here. Before I get into the passage, I want to let you know something I, I found out uh, last week or week or so, there's a lighthouse in the middle of Lake Superior, called Stannard Rock Lighthouse. This lighthouse has been the loneliest place in North America. This particular lighthouse sits on a reef in the middle of Lake Superior. Very lonely, very cold. Its primary purpose was to warn boats not to get too close to this reef, preventing ships Wrecked. The closest land, land mass to this lighthouse is one miles. In order to get to this lighthouse, you either through boat or you have to be on a helicopter to see it. Think about this. It is a very peculiar lighthouse, unlike any other. Instead of sitting on a coastal line, it is literally in the middle of this lake. Today's passage, Psalms 15, is sort of like this lighthouse. It, it is right smacked in the middle of an ocean called Psalms. An ocean full of wisdom, of God's character and attributes. But it is unique because it's not like any other psalm. It doesn't give us any type of wisdom per se. It doesn't encourage us. It doesn't, uh, it's not talking about uh, God rescuing us in a way. So it's not, it doesn't seem encouraging. We'll see today that it is full of wonder. This psalm doesn't have any poetry, emotion, no, no play on words, nothing that makes us emotional, like some psalms do. Psalms 15 has been considered by many theologians to be the ultimate Q&A. The first verse asks the ultimate question to all of humanity, and especially to all believers. 
The first verse asks this question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell holy hill? Life's ultimate question. Who is a friend to God? Who is in with him? Who can see God face to face and not be obliterated? That is life's biggest question. My hope this morning is that we understand a, a deeper meaning of this song. We, I don't know if you've read the book of Psalms, we've read it and maybe have passed through this psalm, maybe take it for granted. Short, five verses. And at first it may sound very legalistic and moralistic. It gives us a set of lists, of marks. Let me assure you, this is not a legalistic sermon. There is a list, and we will deal with that, but it's not a legalistic message. This message is calling, it, calling us to a deeper relationship with God. It is a calling to put our faith into action. Not only to be hearers, readers of the word, but doers of the word. Let us read the passage. Psalms 15. Psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And here's the answer. This is now God speaking. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurts and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And here is the promise. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now, David, like I said before, asks the ultimate question, and we get the ultimate answer from our Lord. I read this passage with the wrong interpretation. You will ask us to fulfill a list of moral behaviors, and that's not what it is. Let me reassure you. In life of salvation, and being considered God's friend, we are not justified by moral behaviors, but by faith. I want to make that clear. David is the doctrine of soteriology or salvation very well. He understands that there is nothing he can do to earn salvation. There is nothing in him that is good enough to please the Lord. And I want you guys to understand that if you never heard this before, I want you to get this clear. He understands that men are depraved and none are worthy of religion. Let me take you to chapter 14 for a second. Verses 2 and 3. Same David. Previous chapter. Look what he, what he says. Verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there's who understand, who seeks God. They all 
all have turned away. Together they have become corrupt. Nothing, there's none who does good, not even one, and that is us. So this morning, if you thought you were able to meet any checklist, if you had any assumptions that you could just be justified by your own deeds or work, let me give you the bad news. You can't. But let me give you the good news. Read chapter 16 for a second. Same author, David, verses 1 and 2. This is what David says, pleading for his salvation. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He understands that there's nothing in him that is good. But anything that comes good out of him is from God. Nothing good that we can do to please God unless he draws it out of us first. I want us to get that clear. Psalm 15 represents what God considers a righteous person. A person that can dwell with Him and be in relationship with Him. But the sad reality is that none of us can fulfill chapter 15. We are not chapter 15. We are chapter 14. Wicked. Forever wicked. In our sinful nature. We are chapter 14. But you know who is chapter 15? Jesus is chapter 15. He fulfilled chapter 15 on our behalf. Now his righteousness and his worthiness is imputed upon us. So that now our lives are righteous in the eyes of the Father. He is pleased in Christ's work. Not in hours. I want to get that clear out there. I don't want to mislead anybody. Jesus is the perfect Adam. Who never defiled with his tongue. And was the perfect steward with his possessions. Who never bowed down to money or these earthly possessions. He is the perfect one. in, 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 In his integrities and all his ways. Now that is the good news. But we still have a list and we have to deal with the list. We cannot fulfill uh, Psalms 15, but we ought to procure to fulfill Psalms 15. Now, if our faith is in Christ, you will have a new regenerate heart. Your Holy Spirit indwells in you. We seek Psalms 15. Not for our own self-righteousness, but to please the Lord and to worship God. Take a look at Paul. He says in Romans 12.1, I appeal, you, appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual worship. That's it. The way we walk, where we live, worships the Lord. And I think we were talking about that this Sunday morning in Sunday school. Let it all be done to God's glory 
not our glory. This is a call to sacrificial living. Not only being a reader of God's word, but also a doer of God's word. And this is exactly what the Psalm, Psalm 15 is saying. And Psalm 15 becomes the lighthouse. Pointing that beam of light. So that we can be pointed back to the word when we're not at our, at our best. It is a reminder that we continuously need a Savior because we cannot fulfill Psalm 15 on, in our own devices and strengths. I've titled this sermon, Who Can Live in God's Holy Mountain? Who? Who can? And I'll be going through five points this morning. Hopefully this will help you and help myself and ourselves to measure our current walk. Again, we're not saved by our deeds, but it's a good measure. It's good to measure ourselves, our hearts, from time to time. Where are we? Where do we need to calibrate? Where do we need to change? What am I doing? We need a wake-up call at times. And this is exactly what Psalm 15 does. It's a wake-up call. When we're sitting on the trenches, on the benches, and not doing nothing, you're not working for the Lord. Again, this is not moralistic. This is not legalistic. It's holy worship. These are the five points. Number one, the one who walks in integrity. Number two, the one that controls his or her tongue. Number three, the one who loves the church. Number four, the one who stays true to his or her convictions. And number five, the one that stewards money well. Let's go. Let's, take, let's dive in. Let's go to point number one. Now, verse two describes a man and a woman of God walking in integrity. It is describing someone's character and how this person walks steady through life unchanged. At least, if we're changing, we're changing in stronger faith but never in decline. It is depicting a Christ-like character. Now, we're not talking about perfection. Again, it's not perfection. We're talking about a character that is obedient to God's Word, abiding in God's Word, and most importantly, working out God's Word. In verse 2, God is saying that if the Word of God has really changed and is living and active in your hearts, then his or her life must be representative of God's word and its direction. In other words, whatever the word of God tells us to do, we do it. A person that has a relationship with God is characterized by living a steady godly life in all their ways. And as believers, we don't just this word is hard. compartmentalize the way we live. We're the same always. We're the same at work. We're the same at home. We're the same in church. We're the same with non-believers as, as we are with believers. That's exactly what the verse is saying. It's a steady integrity. Now, if you were to examine your life, would you say that your character reflects Christ's character the same way you are with other believers as when you are 
when you are on your own. That is the test of one's character. What happens in the intimacy when you're by yourself, when no one can see you? Is your integrity shown then? That's exactly what Psalms 1 is saying. The best measure, again, of integrity and walk of righteousness is how you live your life when you're on your own. See, we tend to live our true selves when we are by ourselves, when no one is around. So when you're by yourself, what are you doing? What are you feeding yourself? Are you procuring righteousness, godliness, holiness? Are you taking the time to read God's word, to be nourished by God's word? Or do you go to other devices to satisfy your own needs? What about if when you're by your, on your own, you go through to, or to pornography? What happens then? Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a life of integrity. That we're the same always. And yes, Christian can suffer and can go through the sin of pornography. That's fine. But what happens? Where is your heart? Are you procuring others, inviting others into your life to be triumphant in the sin? The problem is if you want to stay there in sin. To walk blamelessly is doing what is right. But it's not without sin. We know that. We will continue to sin. But a blameless life is the one that recognizes sin for what it is. We repent. And we allow God's word to convict us of that sin. And then we pray to God for strengthening and perseverance. As David prayed, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. In other words, help my unbelief. Help me walk like Christ walked. Because it pleases you. Now maybe there are areas where you're in your life where it doesn't look the same. Maybe you work out integrity in many areas of your life. But maybe, just maybe, in your personal alone time, you struggle this sin, pornography, or other sins, laziness. Don't mellow in your sin. Recognize it for what it is. Repent of the sin. Seek God to help you. Look for others, like-minded people, to embrace you and help you walk in your sin. Because that is God's will for us. And it pleases the Lord. A blameless and righteous, honest life is a life that is true no matter what. A Christian who is blameless has a consistent life of integrity. And this person is guiltless. Has no guilt. Integrity defines a person that deals with no guilt because there is no fear. There's nothing to hide. All is in the open. Not without sin, but is open to repent from their sin. That is what a walk of integrity is. I don't know what you think of Billy Graham. 
Many have mixed feelings about him. But the one thing I could say about the man is that he lived a life of integrity. And he says about, 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 about integrity. Integrity means that you are trustworthy and dependable. And our character is above reproach. What does that mean, above reproach? That no one can single you out. That you have irregularities in your life. That you're always the same at home, at work, everywhere you go. Where have, you heard, where have we heard this term before, above reproach? Well, 1 Timothy 3, right? Paul instructing Timothy to appoint aspiring pastors and elders gives his young protege a list of marks that must be met by the elders. Paul tells them that the life of an elder or pastor must be above reproach. No one can come and point out that they're different outside the church. But we immediately think that this life of above reproach only pertains to elders. Absolutely not. All Christians ought to aspire to live this type of life. 1 Timothy 3, in all its context, applies to elders, but it also applies to us. We should all aspire to procure 1 Timothy 3. A life above reproach. Pray to God and ask you that, to give you a, a life of integrity. First, because he pleases him and it is our worship to him. Second, because it, because it is part of our making future disciples. The best way to make disciples is to train the next generation... Showing, him, showing them how to live God's word. And not only to teach them how to read God's word. But to walk God's word. <clears throat> the way we live has a real life impact. Let me give you something that happened the other day. In my life. The other day my, young, my oldest son Gabriel was acting mischievous. And he was playing rough with his sister Sophia. And I think he pushed her or something happened. And when we try to correct him, you know, we said, well, it's time to ask for forgiveness. And his answer shocked me. You know what I said? He said this. Dad, he's five years old. Dad, why should I ask for forgiveness to Sophia when this morning you didn't ask mommy for forgiveness? So you could imagine my reaction. How can I preach? How can I teach my child to do something that I am myself are not doing or willing to do? See, the next generation is watching. It's watching. Ever close. Unbelievers are watching. Children are watching. The way we walk matters. Point number two this morning. And this one, woo, the one that controls his or her Tongue. Yikes. Another mark of those who are friends of God is the way they control and use their tongue. Take a look at verse 2 and 3. It says, He who speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. One of life's mystery is how small of a 
part of the body, the tongue, has control over the entirety of our lives. James goes even further to say that there's no way man can control or tame tongue. James 3, 6-8 says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our bodies or members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed. But no man, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now what happens here? Because this list is asking me to control my tongue. James just told me, you can't control the tongue. How is this possible? Again, we can't control the tongue by our own means and strength. Only us who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us can control the tongue. That is what Psalm 15 is saying. We can't control the tongue because Christ controlled it perfectly. How is this possible? So, we still have a, the truth remains, we ought to do this. How can we practically now control the tongue? Look at verse 2. Let's take a look at the first part very closely, because I want you to understand this. The problem with the, the tongue is in the heart. Verse 2 says, speaks truth in his heart. It all starts inside. You want to control the outside? You want to control what comes out of your mouth? Here. The psalmist is talking about a heart issue. Theodore, man, I had this name, I'm killing it. Theodore, Ep, said, Remember that the tongue speaks only what is in the heart. This is so true and so biblical. In order to speak blessings and wisdom, we must have a changed heart. We must fill our hearts with something else, that, something that the world doesn't give. We must be nourished with something else, not in entertainment, not in worldly pleasures. We must be filled with something else, God's Word. We must renew our minds and our hearts constantly with something beyond the permanent or the now. With things that are eternal. God must take a hold of our hearts and transform our hearts with His Word. If not, believe me, there will be no taming of the tongue. Now, as humans... We can put our best efforts and try to fix the, to our talk. We might get as far as to lessen our foul language. We can do that. We might cut down on gossip or slander. But it will all be temporary. Only a temporary patch to a much bigger issue. Because as much as we try to modify the tongue, it can't be tamed with human psychology or human de determination. 
See, I don't care how moralistic you are, and I don't care how good your speech is. If your heart is not rooted in God's love and His Word, you will never be able to speak godly and heavenly things. Speech that pleases God and our blessing towards others. John Piper said this, When the heart full of God's love can draw on the mind full of God's Word, timely blessings flow from the mouth. The tongue will be a measure of your heart and how close you're drawing on the Lord. I'll give you an example. You're a man out there and you're working with other men, either a job site. You know how men can be. Maybe they start talking about women and showing you pictures on Instagram. I see that all the time at work. What is your speech then? What do you say then? You depart from that conversation altogether. You say, that's not for me. I'm a Christian. Or do you partake? You partake on these conversations or do you step aside with courage to let them know that you are a Christian? How much is our heart in love with God will determine our godly speech or lack thereof? Maybe you're a sister this morning, and you're approached by another sister who is gossiping about another sister, daughter of God. We continue on the conversation, adding more fire to the flame, or are you a peacemaker, stopping the gossiping altogether, admonishing your sister, and praying for the sister that was slandered? Or maybe parents. First thing that comes out of your mouth is judgment and harsh words when your children are misbehaving. Maybe. And as parents, we do this. When we are not loving, it's because our hearts lack mercy at times. Our hearts are in a need of uh, patience and love that only comes from our Lord and His Word. We must be in God's word so we can speak blessings to our children. To use our words to point them, point, them, point them to their Savior and correct them with love. We are called to guard our mouths because if not controlled, it is a loose cannon. It wrecks havoc and it doesn't care who is on its way. It doesn't care. Once it's out, it's out. It doesn't come back. What's said is said. It'll be deadly and poisonous. Let me give you young men and young women in this room this morning a bit of advice. If you want to stay out of trouble, tame your tongue. Proverbs 21-23 says, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Let us practice that. If this area in your life, you're, you're struggling, believe me, this week I had to come to terms with a lot of it. Really dig in. Man, I fall short. And it's okay to fall short. We have a Savior that grants us grace. But if you're struggling with this, the best piece of advice is come to the Lord. Pray to Him. 
Be in God's word constantly to renew your mind. Let the Holy Spirit work in your hearts so that whatever is, comes out of your mouth is blessing, yes, and amen. Not destructive talk, but a blessing to others. Psalm 19:17. David asks this of the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I love that David is constantly asking God to help him in every aspect of his life. Because David understands that he is enabled, he incapable of doing this. Who can tame the tongue? James tells us no man can. Only a Lever, whose constant need of Christ, pleading God to come to fix their hearts. Only he, only she can be counted as righteous. Point number three. The one who loves the church. Another mark of a believer who dwells in God's holy mountain is those who have a high regard for the church. God's people. If we read verse 4, it may look like we have a contradiction in the Bible. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. It may appear as though God wants us to hate the non-believer or the non-regenerate. But is that the case? Well, I like to think that's not what God is saying at all. We have to remember that this is Hebrew poetry. And in the original language, the verse talks more about how to regard the sinner than how to treat the sinner. What God is solely saying here is that the one that is in closeness with him has a high regard for believers and not sinners. Meaning that they choose carefully who their role models and teachers are. LeBron James is not my role model. Not. Trump is not my role model. Biden is not my role model. They're not. They fall short. What God is saying here is we should regard godly people very high. Part of the Christian experience is that we have to live with amongst people that are hostile to the gospel, people that hate God. It's part of our life. We are in daily interactions with men and women who in their current spiritual stance are indemnity with God. Which is okay to have those interactions at times and even friendships with those unbelievers. If we're not, Christ wouldn't ask the Father to leave us in this world because we are part of this world. We are part of it. But this verse deals on how high of a view we have for the church and its members. Pastor Freddie is preaching on uh, through the book of Acts, verse by verse. And one of the primary themes of this book is how the church interacted amongst members and how members, the church, the body of Christ in high regard. Seems to me that we've taken this for granted. Church becomes mundane, only a Sunday checklist. I'll see you when I see you. That's not what the book of Acts shows. The primitive church 
at a relationship with one another. It seems like any activity or any uh, moment they had, they spent it together. They were searching out for unbelievers to hang out with. What can the unbeliever teach me? Maybe on, your, on a professional level, but on a spiritual level. I don't think so. Made it a priority to gather and grow in fellowship as a family. But it wasn't like the churches in Miami. Nope. We may gather occasionally on Sundays, maybe perhaps on a Bible study, maybe the American church has ingrained within the church its philosophies on individualism. We have become very individualistic in that some things are in our life stay private. Oh, this is where the door is shut. Don't come near. Have no say here. But the non-important things, oh yeah, I'll share with you. Oh, I'm open. Absolutely. That is not what the Bible says and teaches. You know, it comes to a point that we become very smart in, again, the word compartmentalizing our church relationship. What do I mean? We immediately put a stubborn relationship as soon as the church is getting too much into my business. Things such as finances, how I teach my children, certain affiliations. We can't even talk about the, the, the things that are important in our everyday life, like politics. We can't. Oh, don't go there. Don't go there. These are things that matter to us. How can I not talk to you about politics? We may differ and have disagreements. Absolutely. Then do I have to go outside the church to talk to unbelievers? Just because they are affiliated with Republican Party or Democrat Party? What is that? We view everything in the light of God and the gospel. Politics matter. How can we just come in and say, no, politics, stop it. Don't talk to me. No. No. This is exactly what the, the, the verse is saying. People that have a high view of membership of the church have woven relationships, tightly knit. Yeah, I don't know who came up with, uh, maybe Pastor Freddie or Victor came up with, last Sunday, brothers and sisters opening up their homes. Man, what a blessing that is. What an opportunity to come and love one another and get to know each other. What a great opportunity. Take advantage of these things. Take advantage Again, I don't want to make this a political sermon. I, I don't. Hear me out. I'm just saying that the church is that place where believers are loving and are able to speak on life's most important things. Yes, the gospel is ever-present. And our mission is to make disciples. But it is okay on such things. And we might differ. That's okay. There is room to build a bond of friendship and be able to differ as long as it comes out of a heart of love. It's okay. The passage is referring to a person whose priorities are aligned with the heart of Christ. Christ died for those who believe. And therefore, Christ cares for the believer. And His blessings are for His people. And our priority should be God's people. Galatians 6.10 Paul says, So then, as we have Opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Absolutely. 
We do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We say that. The passage is saying that. The scripture is saying that. What would it take for us, I wonder, if we lived this out? What would happen in our small community here in Kendall? What would happen? I wonder. As a young parent, again, I've always wondered this. It's always crossed my mind. What if my wife and I depart from this world? It can't happen. There's nothing promised. I know God is in control, and I understand that He's sovereign, but I've always wondered what would the church do if and when parents depart from this earth? Are they, the church willing to come and embrace those children? Because what is, is the alternative? That I leave, it, leave my kids with ungodly family members, or leave them to the state to educate my children. Is that the alternative? When all the, the state is teaching now is gender ideologies, science, and that, and that evolution is beyond and higher than our God. Is that the alternative here? What I'm saying is that we must build a culture of embrace to hold the church high, membership high. It's important. It matters. It's our protection. It's our, the gift, our gift from God. Osborne, I saw you going like that. Maybe uh, that was an amen. <laughs> I'll take the amen. Beloved, a true mark of a believer is how he or she loves and honors those who fear the Lord. You cannot be a believer and not have a high regard for the church. First John Chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and we say, I love God very well. But you hate your brother. And the word hate here in, in, in Greek doesn't go as much as to say you hate him. It's as much as you have something against your brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, this teaching is important. The apostles understood, understood the importance of the church because, beloved, Christ died for the church. His blood was spent for the church. Oh, what a blessing that is. It is a reality. We must demonstrate our love to our Lord by loving His people. But our love cannot be superficial or on the surface level. No, this type of honoring is sacrificial. It is making our life about the body of Christ. To invite others into our family circle. To open up our homes to your brethren. To create long-lasting relationships. And this is representative of someone that dwells on God's holy mountain. Point number four. The one who stays true to his and her convictions. Men were constantly bombarded uh, by the world. Testing our convictions. Oof. Especially to I haven't read in, in history a time such as these. Where deception is rampant. From every angle. 
Every single angle of our lives. Verse 4 says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This particular verse is depicting a person who is strongly rooted in his faith convictions. That it doesn't matter if they end up on the shorter end of the stick, they will continue to believe and stand firm on the solid rock that is Jesus. Like I said, in our new progressive world, it wants us to give up 2,000 years of church orthodoxy. They're testing our fiber as believers. I call it the era of deception, where the enemy is at full throttle to deceive the church with its fiery darts. As believers, we are called to stand firm to our beliefs, to our doctrines and theology, because it matters, because it dictates how closely we grasp onto the Lord. Doctrine matters, not only on a theology of the mind, but also a theology of action. That the exception, again, comes from all directions, even from within the body of Christ. Think about all the new enlightening revelations and supposed teachers in modern times apostles teach. Think about that. The church of Christ must be rooted in God's word to combat such lies. Sometimes our convictions are as simple as deciding not to watch a movie because it teaches ideologies that we're not aligned with. That's as simple as that. If we let go of our convictions in the little things, slowly but surely, we will let go on the bigger things. And if we start breaking our convictions and conscience, what are we teaching our children? That convictions are easily breakable when it is convenient. The verse talks about a man and a woman of God who is unshakable on his or her convictions. The line is drawn. The convictions are set and there's nothing this world says or does. It won't change my faith. That is what passage is talking about. The good news, beloved, is that we stand firm not because we are smarter or have more determination than the world. The reason we stand firm in our convictions is because they are founded on Christ. He never lets go. Even when we want to throw in the towel, He persists and He promises that you are His and that you are in His mighty hands. He won't let go. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. True believers can be reassured that their faith is unshakable because the one who calls you was unshaken. And when he was at the cross and breathed out his last breath, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, and it was so. Your life and mine are now secured. You can faithfully stand firm on that promise and truth. 
even if it costs you your life, you are promised everlasting life with God on his holy mountain. And that is the worshiper that God is after. Men and women of unshakable convictions, whose faith is on Christ and nothing else. Point number five. Last one. Make it brief. Now, this one talks about money, right? Money is, say, the love of money is the root of all evil. It is. It is a surprise to see that the last mark of the believer that God gives an answer to is money. But it doesn't surprise me not too much seeing how the world views money. God answers David in verse 5. The one that dwells with God is he who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. God uses the example of lending money to contrast greed versus justice. See, today, banks have made made so much money. I work for one. I could tell you. Money, banks have made a ridiculous amount of money on high interest. It should be illegal, what these people do. It's part of our financial system, so therefore we've, we've allowed it, and it happens. It's part of our society. It is how institutions make money. They lend out money and, and, and charge the interest. But God is requiring something more out of the believer. He is requiring that if we lend money, especially to our brothers, we don't take advantage of their misery. We should aspire and procure justice and mercy. When the Lord judges the world, the righteous and the unrighteous, and all things are made public and open, we will know the extent of all the wicked things ever done because of money. Money has a hold in the heart of men. Evil and vile things are done in the pursuit of riches and wealth. How many friends have been betrayed and betrayed one another? How many family members and how many innocents have been lost to the bribery of money? The call to the one who dwells with God is higher We ought to love justice more than wealth, more than riches. For a believer, supplying for those in need is more important than our possessions. For this man, particularly in verse 5, money is a resource to bless others and not something to hold on tight to. Beware of money because money Hence, to show where your treasures really lie. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How you spend and steward God's money, what He's provided, will tell you where your heart is. Money will tell you where your priority lies, whether on earthly things or heavenly things. Tim Keller said this, Every treasure on this earth says, Give your life to purchase me. Jesus says, 
I am the one treasured who died to purchase you. We must seek that treasure. So therefore, we must, as believers, have a good solid theology on money and finances. Because it matters what you do with your possessions. It matters. Let me finish this point with this quote. Major Ian Thomas said this, A man could have all the money in all the banks in all the world and be worth nothing as far as God is concerned. If he were still living to and for himself. Make good use of what God has gracefully given you. Make this aspect of your life as one who dwells in God's holy mountain. And here's my conclusion. I promise it will be short. Go to lunch. Oof, man. Psalms 15 ends with this beautiful statement and promise. He who does these things shall never be moved. The word moved in other translations use the word shaken. In Hebrew, the word here used is mot. Mot, which means to waver, slip, or fall. This word has been used 14 times in the Psalms. And God, David uses them always as a promise that God will never let us slip or fall. This is a promise not of, out of sin or self-reliance. As the wicked says in their heart, I shall not be moved. Psalms 10.6 This is not a promise out of self-righteousness. Because he who dwells with God hold their unwavering and unchanging position in the Lord. On the one who fulfilled Psalms 15 on their behalf. Use Psalm 15 as a lighthouse to lead the way. To draw us near to our Savior. May we find favor with our Lord. And may we dwell on His holy mountain. Let us pray. Lord, the word has been preached. You do what you do best. Change the hearts. Thank you that you've been exalted. Christ, our hope is that your name has been lifted. To show us our necessity of you. Lord, we're not Psalm 15. You are the perfect Psalm 15. You fulfilled it for us. And we, for this, we rejoice. We rejoice in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit of God, convict us of any sin. Lead us through your word to change. Not just a mere outward action, but inward. Allow us to dwell on your holy mountain. Allow us to be beacons of light that others see. Reflection of you, of your character. Lord, we praise you. Allow us to dwell on this and meditate on this word throughout the week. May it change us. May it have a high impact on our society, on those who are watching. Lord, save people. Save those who are in need of a Savior. Be merciful. Allow us, as your church, to walk in a manner that is worthy of you. Lord, thank you once more. We get to gather and worship you. Thank you.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.